Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, dad. Hello everybody, welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast, where we do movies decided by the role of a die and interviews too, and today I'm going to be doing an interview with a special effects makeup creator, assistant, a creature designer, mechanic, the list goes on and on. He's been in a lot of different movies in the 80s that we are familiar with. He's helped out in Gremlins. He's helped out in Trick or Treat. He's helped out in one of my personal favorites. One day I'm hoping to do it on this show, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I want to welcome to the show, Ralph Miller. How are you doing today, Mr. Miller? I'm feeling good. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And I'm saying you look great. I was talking to you before we started. You got this wonderful shirt on that you told me your mom made you. And it is, it is, I mean, I know it's the the one of a kind, but dang, damn it, that shirt looks nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's got all these bogus B monster movie uh, posters all over it. They're not, they're not real movies, but but they're funny. Like the horrible saucer men return, the giant robot, night of the wolf man, all kinds of funny things. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure when you're walking around with that, if you have anybody of a certain anybody that's a movie fan, especially a, a horror or, or creature movie fan, they're going to be like following you just to read the shirt, to look at the, the posters, <laughs> which is always yeah, the great thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't complain. Yeah, I, I wear some shirts that are provocative at times. Well, this is one yeah. of those shirts. I think your mom did an excellent job. So if she's listening to this, oh, she did great. That's a, that's a, a shirt I know most people would would want to get. <laughs> yeah, she's incredible. She lines up all the fabric so that across the buttons, the pattern is consistent. Even the pocket, the pattern is consistent. You can't even tell there's a pocket there. It's perfect. She's amazing. <laughs> Very creative person. I'm sure her creativity rubbed off on me some as I was growing up. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of times when you have creatives in the household, when you're growing up, they rub off on you in different ways that you don't expect. And when you were growing up, before you went into special effects and creature design and all those different ways to do creativity in the movie industry, what were you doing as as a lad growing up? What what inspired you? Because I have a feeling I know one of the people that might have inspired you. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, my idol, once I knew who he was and what he did, my idol was Ray Harryhausen, stop motion animator supreme, uh, who, you know, obviously the most successful stop motion animator in history. And uh, also all the others uh, along with him, like Jim Danforth and Willis O'Brien, all these folks. I just love the work they did. And I was thinking that I would be a stop motion animator someday. And uh, lucky for me, animatronics came into their own at the right time when I graduated from college. So I could do something other than stop motion because I would not have cut it. Honestly, I just wouldn't have had the skill to, to compete against these other folks who struggled to, to have a steady career aside from Ray Harryhausen, as it was. But uh, what I did do is I always was drawing when I was a little kid, drawing monsters, even in kindergarten. I know I was drawing Martians and dinosaurs and monsters. I just love monsters. I 
I could never get enough of them. So I did see some movies on the, the big screen that I re- recall from when I was very young. I remember Jack the Giant Killer, uh, Tom Thumb, and uh, The Wonderful World of Brothers Grimm, and Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. That one really blew my mind. You know, when I saw those movies, I didn't know what was happening. I just knew it was really cool, and I just I just loved it. I had no idea how they did that stuff at the time. And, uh, you know, for some people, knowing my might uh upset their their sense of fantasy and, and their enjoyment but i i never had that problem i always wanted to know you know just like i was into reading books about how, how to do magic tricks i didn't become a magician because i didn't practice it takes a lot of practice to make that really work but i wanted to find out how things worked you know uh so I would do makeups on myself and my brother, and I did uh, paper mache masks, and I made little creatures with uh, pipe cleaner skeletons covered with crepe paper. And before I had access to fur fabric, I would take yarn and shred it and glue it on bit by bit. You know, I was working with really crude materials. Uh, I, I for five years or something, I, I would create a spook house and invite the neighborhood kids to see it. And I put up posters around, you know, for 15 cents, uh, come see uh, the Tunnel of Terror. I didn't call it the House of Horrors, which I was going to because Mike Foley, who lived down the street, said people might be confused and think it was a house of horrors. And he had explained what horrors meant to me because I had no idea being a kid. <laughs> But anyhow, um, so that's kind of how I cut my teeth, just just having these live presentations. The first one was in the garage, and after that, they were in the basement, because I lived in Illinois, where people have basements. Now I'm in California. We don't have basements. <laughs> really? No <laughs> so, basements so in California? Have, well, there are some, but they're quite rare. Uh, I don't know why that is, honestly. Maybe earthquake country? I don't know. Some have basements. But... There also is danger of flooding if you have a basement. So it's perhaps just as well that we don't. But I did make sure we had a two-car garage. So that's my workshop and storage place. (laughs) Yeah. But it's kind of fun. These days, you can read about other people. Like, you really should have somebody more important like Rick Baker on your podcast here, (laughs) Stephen. Well, (laughs) what am I doing here? You are important, but... (laughs) I would love to have Rick Baker on here too. I mean, it's, it, you, you, I've, I've been blessed to have some people that have done different effects like Bill Diamond, Rick Catazone, um, Jim Apparel um, on the show and, and that kind of yes. stuff. So it's just like you get, you get lucky where you have these, some of these different creative types come from different walks of the the world, you know, cause of Bill Diamond mostly for pup Muppets and puppets and, but also a lot of other things too. And it's just amazing how when you, once you interview one guy and you're talking with that person, then you realize that person's connected to another person who's connected to another person and you're connected to some of these people too. So it's just interesting how yeah. it's a small world where everybody seems to know everybody and they've, and they've worked with each other in some type of capacity on different crews and teams and how collaborative the effort is. We're back in the day 
when Ray Harryhausen was doing it, he was the one-man team. I mean, which is why he's the OG in my mind of oh, the yeah. special of the you know special effects. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, I remember someone saying, you know, with with Ray Harryhausen, you know, at the point when he retired after Clash of the Titans, with him no longer making the films as he did, that that sort of auteur special effects artist were who does like just about everything. Other people would do matte paintings. He had a little help with the sculpting. And in the last film, of course, he had uh, Jim Danforth and um, Steve, I forget his name. <laughs> uh, anyway, he, he had a little bit of help, but um, he did so much on his own. And he also originated the concepts for the movies and did pre-production art that on its own is staggering to see it. Uh, you know, so he's he's one of a kind. You know, people would talk about who's the next Ray area. No such animal. <laughs> On the low budget end, there's a guy named Brett Piper who's done a number of feature-length films, but on budgets that are really low. <laughs> yeah. But but still, it's it's fantastic to see that somebody is is carrying this forward. Of course. If you're talking about stop motion without people involved, I mean, without, you know, interaction between humans that are alive and, and these fantasy creatures, you've got Del Toro's Pinocchio and oh. all these other stop motion films like that. That that film blew my mind. I was so glad that it won. Even as much as I love the Kyoto Brothers and they worked on the Marcel the Shell with shoes on. <laughs> so, you know. I had trouble choosing between the two, but... I ended up going. I ended up, in my mind, going with Pinocchio because I just enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But both, but two different stories. Both stories are great stories. Both movies are great movies. And if you, if, listeners, if you haven't seen either one of them, you really should see them. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. It's it's fantastic, and you know there are new tools that enable them to do things with stop motion that were not possible in the past. And you know, there's just so many things that have changed since since I was in it, because uh, I, I, my last film was Scanner 2 in 1990, so it's been quite a while since I was doing these things. But when I think about it that way, I think about how much time has passed. It's like 35 years ago uh, since, since um, Killer Clowns from Outer Space came out, you know, um, the, the interval of time between now and then, in the 80s, is the same as the interval of time between the 80s and World War II. I mean, that's that's a huge chunk of time. I still remember my films fairly well because I wasn't in the business as long, and then I, maybe there are other people who were busier than me. Like, maybe half the time I wouldn't be working because there just wasn't work for me. Um, but, you know, some people who were really at the top of their game and really the best of the best had steadier careers than I did. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm not complaining. I feel really blessed to have the opportunity to work on the movies I did. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy you were able to get on in these movies too. And speaking of, how did you get started with getting into the movies? Like with Gremlins, you know, and those kind of things. What, what led you to go from small town in Illinois California is the way to go. <laughs> That's right. California is the place you got to be. That's right. Well, um, 
I went to USC film school at Southern California, now South Carolina, and uh, also known as the University of Spoiled Children, USC. And uh, that is where I learned more about how films are made, and I learned a little bit more about how to do the special effects work as well, not through classes, but through the other people I was working with, mostly on a film called Zizak is King that Hugh Stegman directed. You can actually see a good copy of that on YouTube. Um, it's a Dungeons and Dragons movie where it alternates between scenes where it's uh, people playing Dungeons and Dragons and the visualization of what's happening in that fantasy world. And I got to sculpt and portray the werewolf at the beginning of that movie that fights with this heroic character who is very muscle-bound named Zizak. And uh, it was a great pleasure. You know, I, I'm i fine with having the life casting done on me. That was cool. <laughs> Some people are claustrophobic. It's not their thing. You know, but, but to portray a monster, that's, that's a monster maker's dream. You know, like Rick Baker playing the gorillas in some of his movies. Me playing the werewolf in that movie was just a, a blast. And, you know, other people who worked on that movie, like Tassel Bauer, was in charge of the special effects for the student film. Uh, he's done a lot of pyrotechnics and things. He actually did a fire stunt in the movie, which is crazy for a student film on 16 millimeter. And uh, Steve Koch has done matte paintings and all kinds of work. I, I have, I, I'm not his mom, so I don't know everything he's done, but I know he's very accomplished. Um, and uh, Scott Ressler, who uh, was really into makeup effects, but went into camera work, you know. So anyway, <laughs> that was a, a seminal film for most of us. I don't think that Hugh Stegman, the director, had a, a fruitful directing career, but those of us who worked on the special effects, the behind-the-scenes stuff, um, some of us uh, really got some mileage out of that. And then there are connections you make. Scott Ressler, who worked with us on The Creatures and Effects, he pointed out to me that there was this uh, variety ad for people who wanted to work in a movie. And this movie, this full-page ad was for Beastmaster, Tom Cascarelli's Beastmaster. I didn't actually stay the full time on that one. That was a situation where <laughs> the producer, Paul Pepperman, was like, we want you know, young talent. We want people who want to make their break in the film industry. And we've got lots of work to do. And this is your opportunity. The downside was the pay. It wasn't a volunteer situation, but they were paying ultimately less than a dollar an hour, which was clearly not what you're supposed to get paid even back then in the early eighties. Um, so I stuck with it for a little while, but also there was a lot of incompetence behind the scenes because you're not going to get the best people when you're not paying. <laughs> so, so there were some ideas and some ways that things were done that were not very professional. And uh, when it came around Christmas time, I told them, I didn't feel I was learning valuable skills. Plus, I was I was promised the opportunity after I did some prop and set construction kind of stuff 
that I would get to work on the makeup effects and creature end of things. And that offer never materialized. I think they were just stringing me along. Um, which happens. <laughs> so I told them I didn't feel I was learning valuable skills and I wanted to, uh, the real reason I, I quit at that particular time is because I wanted to go home and visit my family for Christmas. <laughs> but uh, then my friend Scott Ressler found another opportunity. He had a friend, Tim Landry, who had been a student at USC, and, and uh, he got me a job. Well, I got a job working for Tim Landry at a place called CPC, which stood for Colossal Pictures of California, or, or uh, Cascade, sorry, <laughs> Cascade Pictures of California. Cascade is where they did the Pillsbury Doughboy and other stop-motion commercials and things like that. I didn't work on a Pillsbury Doughboy commercial, but I did work on some, like, tire commercials, ocean spray, grapefruit juice, and things like that. And uh, I got to do, I was hired as a runner, which is where you're going out and buying things they need, picking up stuff. Um, but ultimately, I was moved into doing some model building. And it's kind of funny because the first professional model building I did in, in the movies was putting together car models for a tire company commercial. And uh, I was never really that into cars, so I wasn't one of these kids who built car models before. But I built the Aurora Horror uh, Monsters, so... I, I was familiar with how to put together a plastic model kit, so I had some rudimentary skills. Uh, a funny project that we did was a model car that was supposed to look like it was computer-generated. I mean, really simple computer-generated, you know, where it's got like the kind of grid lines and that's all you see of the car. And so I took uh, a large Transam model car kit and they had me cover it with, like simple flat pieces of plastic and then use uh, Bondo to smooth it out. So it, it looked like it was a very simplified geometric form. And then we spray painted it gray and put some white uh, strips of tape on it so that it, it looked like something that a computer graphic image back in those days would produce. Because back then, computer graphics were expensive and slow and Aside from controlling the motion control of this car and other objects for the commercial, you didn't see a lot, a lot of computer graphics happening. So it was actually cheaper to, to make this phony computer graphic car as a physical model than to model it in the computer, which today, you know, anybody with a laptop can do at the home <laughs> and, and much more sophisticated versions of a, a car than what we were doing. <laughs> well, technology's changed I mean, so the, much in the in like thirty years. Oh, yeah. So it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this is before there was a microwave. So I would, you know, use a, a crock pot for food that I would I would pop it in in the morning. At night, I'd have something edible. <laughs> <laughs> this was before there was super glue. So the fastest thing we had was five minute epoxy. When super glue came out, that was at the time we were working on Star Wars. I guess that's when they first came out, but. For some reason, we weren't really using it back then at, at the Cascade. I don't know why that is. <laughs> but anyway, I did get to meet Dave Allen, David Allen, who animated the Pillsbury Doughboy, and Harry Walton is another stop-motion animator. Um, uh, let's see. There was uh, Tom Sherman, who did models, who had done models on uh, 
flesh Gordon, <laughs> you know, so I, I got to kind of rub shoulders with some of these people who had done some fantastic world that work that I admired. And, and that was, that was really cool. Yeah. And it's interesting. A lot of us have really similar backgrounds and interests. Like I, I'm reading these huge volumes of Rick Baker uh, called metamorphosis. You know, it could, you could, uh, <laughs> you could break your back trying to lift those books. They're so big. But uh, reading about how he started, you know, he had the same kind of interest. He, he saw Famous Monsters magazine and found out, oh, there are people who make these monsters. It's not a mad doctor who makes Frankenstein. It's, it's a makeup artist, you know. Uh, you find out about stop motion, and, and he was fascinated with stop motion, too, when he was younger. And, you know, it's, it's like you can really see parallels. Now, I never met with Dick Smith, but, <laughs> you know, uh, the, there, were, there were all these parallels between us um, that, that you really appreciate as you read the stories of other folks. It's like we're not that different in a lot of ways. Of course, some people probably worked a lot harder than me. Some people were more proficient than me. I could always, you know, look to other people and say, yeah, <laughs> if I'm competing with this person, doing like animatronics, they're definitely getting the job, not me. <laughs> but the cool thing about it is that even if you're not the most socially skilled person, having a portfolio, the portfolio is what does a lot of the talking. It shows the work that you've done and gives people an idea of what you can do. And, um, one thing I made it a point to do when I was between jobs, which was pretty frequent in those days, is I would use that time not just to look for work, but also to do personal projects. Like uh, I would like make a little mechanical hand, or um, I would I would sculpt something. Uh, I made monster masks, rubber masks, that kind of thing, just so that you're improving your skills. Because you can, you can learn on the job, you can learn in a school setting or, you know, through online courses or now Stan Winston uh, School of uh, Character Arts has all these classes you can take. Things were different back then because this information was not really available. The films were not readily available. You didn't have all these, you know, extras and bonuses and behind the scenes to see how things were done. There were a couple of things back then, like uh, you could see the making of Dark Crystal on TV or the making of the Raiders of the Lost Ark movies. And these were instructive. And, uh, you know, Dick Smith had this do-it-yourself, you know, monster makeup book that was where you could use relatively simple materials and make some pretty interesting makeups. Um, but one magazine that really was important to me was Cinemagic magazine. Uh, Don Dohler, who's made some very low-budget genre films like, uh, let's see, uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know. Oh, the, the, the Alien Factor. Yeah, Alien Factor. That's that's a big one, yeah. The reason I know, yeah, he's, for sure. I interviewed Dick Dick Dizel, who was in some of those movies, and also um, George Stover. And um, Oh, yeah, George Stover, yeah. And I'm, I'm a <laughs> Marylander, actor. so, of course, Don Dohler, you know, Oh, oh yeah, God. yeah, Don Zeller. <laughs> yes, yeah, the editor of the magazine. Yeah. Anyway, it was it was great because you could see what other people were doing because people would report on their movies, and 
you could see how to make things, how to do stuff, you know, like how to cast foam latex, how to make a mold, how to uh, do some simple mechanics. And, and that was hugely important because that kind of information was just simply not available anywhere else. And I even, there was even an article with one of my stop motion creatures in it, how to make a glowing effect for stop motion creatures where I use little pieces of scotch light on the eyes. You know, scotch light is super reflective material that's used for front projection. It's also uh, a variant of it is used for street signs so that when the, the light is by the camera, it's going to glow back just, just like a, the glowing uh, eyes of a, a cat at night, that kind of thing. So anyhow, uh, and uh, Steve Koch and I both had articles uh, talking about the, the films and the work that we did as amateurs. And, and that was kind of a boost to my ego, <laughs> maybe a little more than I deserved. But I think that when I was first looking for work, I wasn't quite as good as I thought I was. But on the other hand, if you don't have a certain amount of ego, you're just not even going to compete. You're going to say, this is impossible. <laughs> And, and I'm sure a lot of people without, without the support of their families, without, you know, parents or friends who really help support them in this kind of really strange career path, I, I'm sure a lot of them uh, just, just never really get the support they need and, and never really pursue creative and unusual careers as, as I did. In fact, my mom wrote a letter to Ray Harryhausen asking, how does someone prepare for a career in effects like you do? And he kindly wrote back and even sent some black and white pictures from Seven Voids of Sinbad. He talked about how he's, he was working on Golden Voids of Sinbad at the time. And um, I'll never forget that at the end of his letter, it said, I wish you every success in your pursuit of the unusual, something like that. I just forgot exactly what he said, but something like that. <laughs> and I thought that's a really nice thing to say. And Ray Harryhausen was a very giving person. He wasn't somebody who told all of his secrets. <laughs> he, was, he was very tight-lipped about things at the time. Some people like Jim Danforth kind of figured stuff out. but um, and, and he really wasn't doing that much that that different from other people could do, but um, he did get in touch with young fans, people like Dennis Buren and Jim Danforth and Jim Pearl, who uh, went on to careers in effects. And, you know, they were very encouraged to, to see what this man was doing, to see his work and to actually be able to talk with him. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing is very important, just as, Harryhausen was kind of standing on the shoulders of Willis O'Brien, who, whose King Kong was so inspirational to him. So there's there's the work that people do, and there's also just if you actually get to meet them, what those people are like, and and how they interact with you that can be so so critical to your development as an artist. And I agree with you uh, when you go to meet <coughs> excuse me when you go to meet those different heroes in the past, you know, or in the present at that time, and you're talking to them, for them to take the time to mentor or guide 
is such a key thing because a lot of them could be just like, oh, I'm not going to, I don't want to have comp- competition. I don't want to have this or that. Um, as you said, not, not all of them would share all their secrets, but they, you know, you, you could follow their work and you could figure a lot of times you could puzzle it out, as you said earlier, and about what they're possibly doing and that kind of stuff. But even if you knew exactly what they're doing to go back to your magic trick thing, you know, the trick <laughs> doesn't mean you're going to be able to pull it off. Like somebody at, at, a, at a mate, you know, like we're talking like a major league <laughs> superstar level and you were a major leaguer, but you weren't the superstar level. And j- j- I, I was not. And, but the thing is, is, but you made the major leagues. And that's why when you're saying earlier about like, Oh, you, you should have Rick Baker or you should have Phil Tippett or whatever. <laughs> oh yeah. I would love that. I mean, but, but also I love talking to you guys too, because the thing is everybody does the same work, but you bring different viewpoints and different contributions to the overall team effort and the work with it. And without the whole team, the, the, the end result is going to be different. So you need all the, all the people together. It's not, it's not longer. Like we said, a one man show. It's a, multi, it's, a, it's, a it's, it's a full, full team. That's why you see those credits go on and on and on and on and on at the end of movies. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I feel sorry for people nowadays because there are thousands of people in the credits, at least <laughs> the films we were doing were a lot simpler for the most part. I mean, Gremlins was the biggest one, or and Ghostbusters 2 was pretty big, but, um, you know, when I was working on films for John Beekler, some of those films, you know, you just have half a dozen people in the shop doing all the creatures and stuff, and that was enough. <laughs> and then there might be a slightly different crew over in Italy actually doing the makeup applications and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, the bigger the project is, the smaller your part in it unless you happen to be, you know, the art director or the designer, you know, the creator, the one in charge. Um, it's, it's a little harder to point to what your little piece of that puzzle was, but you work on a, a, a small film, a really independent low budget movie. And then it's a lot easier to say, Oh yeah, I made that creature. <laughs> or I made that creature with one assistant, that kind of thing. Yep. And, uh, and there's, so there's, there's value in both. Plus, if you're doing, you know, if you're working on smaller projects, often you get opportunities to learn a lot of different things, do a lot of different things. But you work on a big thing, like Gremlins was one of the biggest puppet animation or animatronic movies at the time with little creatures. I just learned so much from that one movie that, I learned more on that movie than any other, uh, you know, I'm, I'm eternally indebted to Chris Willis who is in charge and also to Steve Wang who tipped me off to that job. So there again, you've got somebody tipped me off to a job. I, one thing I did after I worked on gremlins and then was out of work for a while is when I moved to Southern California again, because gremlins was done in Northern California, moved back to Southern California, in a two-week period, I interviewed with a different person every day. So I, I saw 10 different people, you know, and I'm talking like Craig Reardon, Rick Baker, Stan Winston, Tom Berman, you know, all these big people. Well, what I'd done to figure them out is I had read the Fangoria articles. There were all these interviews and, you know, I'd highlight them and I'd, you know, keep those copies and I would just, learn what I could about these people. And then I tried to find out how I can get a hold of them. 
and they weren't all in the phone book. Some were, because <laughs> they wouldn't be. They would be swamped today. But but in those days, they'd be in the phone book, and some would be in the phone book. And then I would talk to someone like James Cummins, and he saw what I was doing was okay. He didn't have any work for me at the time, but I said, "Do you have the, the phone numbers of these other people I'm trying to reach?" You know, and so I was able to get more names and numbers that I could contact. Anyway, the 10th person I saw when I was on that trip to Southern California and there to stay for some time was John Beekler. And he hired me on the spot, which was wonderful for me because I worked on several films for him. That is in the low budget realm. We were doing the Charlie Band Empire Pictures movies at the time. Um, see, the thing is, when you're looking for work at one of these shops, usually they're not they're not a huge shop. So at any one time, they're either working on a movie or they're not. When they're not working on the movie, they're not going to hire you because they don't have work. When they are working on the movie, they're usually crewed up already because it's already happening. In the case of Gremlins, they needed so many people that I was able to get on even though they were well underway with with the puppet effects that they were doing. Um, you know, so John Beekler, <laughs> uh, I was, I was doing a lot of animatronic work, you know, the mechanical stuff for them. They had had, uh, you know, Dave Kindlin before who was an ace mechanic and, and following me, they had John Criswell who's incredible. So, you know, and, and the sculptors and people we've worked with ultimately went on to work with people like Rick Baker, you know, so it's not that he didn't have good people working for him. Um, one thing is that he worked with the lowest of budgets and he had his style, his way of seeing things. You know, a Rick Baker creature is not going to look like a John Beekler creature and that's not going to look like a Stan Winston creature. You know, there's the crew that works for them, but the person at the top really has a lot to do with setting what the aesthetic is for the shop. And Don Beaker was kind of pissed off because he said, you know, people talk about the movies he does and say they're not real movies or he's not doing real special effects. It's just a lot of junk. But he said, look, aren't we using foam latex just like everybody else? Aren't we, you know, mechanizing these things? Aren't we doing appliances? And you can look at it that way or you can look at it from an aesthetic perspective and say, Yes, but <laughs> it's a different look. It's not the same thing that other people were doing. Still, you know, other people saddled with the kinds of schedules and budgets that John Beekler had wouldn't be capable of, of pulling off, you know, Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, or Aliens, you know. The, you just have to have resources to, to do the best work. Um, but the thing that was cool is that Charlie Band kept throwing projects at the shop so that people could stay busy working on a number of films. And when I left John Deacon's shop, he said, you know, you can work on other films for other people, but you'll probably work on less movies and you probably won't be working as much of the time. And that was true. So there were downtimes at John's shop as well. And that's the thing that you have to understand. It's not like a regular job where you get hired and you might be there for five or 10 years. It's, you might be there for a few weeks, a few months, 
uh, the longest jobs I've had have been like six months or a year. But sometimes they'd just be for a couple of weeks. Sometimes they would say they've got a couple of weeks of work, and they're saying that so that it's easy to let you go if you don't work out so well. They don't have to have a you know an awkward scene where they fire you. They just say, "Well, thank you for your service. <laughs> the two weeks is up." <laughs> Avoid the drama. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Now, what else you got for me, Stephen? <laughs> I was gonna say, like I said, you worked on Gremlins. Now you said you came in in the well when I was in production and stuff like that. What did you do on it? Because I know you said you learned a lot. What did you learn and do on Gremlins that really helped mold you? Because you're talking yeah. very early in your like career still. That's right. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> perhaps the best film I worked on. One of the best, and it was one of the first things I worked on. Yeah, so there were some really ace people on that. We're talking sculpting, molding, casting, painting, animatronics, design, you name it, it was all good. (laughs) But, you know, nonetheless, the project went through changes. Like initially, they had a gremlin that was so small, there was only one person on the crew who could actually cram their hands into it. (laughs) So they had to re-sculpt something a little bit bigger. Um, But as far as me, okay, I got a chance to do some molding and casting. I was doing a fair amount of work uh, making skin flex, or no, no, not skin flex, smooth-on bladders. (laughs) Bladder work, you know, those inflatable things like they used in American Werewolf or the Howling to show uh, the, the body is changing or bulging or something in the case of Gremlins. We did a lot of, uh, Pete, Pete Kleino, who's a stop motion animator, uh, and I uh, cast up a lot of the, the uh, back bubbles that, that uh, produce more gremlins on the back of, of the gremlins when they get wet. Um, worked on the, the material for the, the bulging stomach of the one that was drinking in the bar. Um, we made some little... Uh, appliance uh, bladders for the gremlin that was in the microwave. And um, I actually had the, uh, <laughs> had the honor of puppeteering that gremlin that was in the microwave. It's just kind of shaking its body a little bit right before its head blows out. And Chotan uh, <laughs> is like, so it, its head explodes? Yeah, yeah, Chris would say. Because Chris Willis had rather famously worked on um, exploding heads before, like in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end of that movie. <laughs> Hope that's not a spoiler for too many people. <laughs> Somebody's head explodes. <laughs> um, you know, and it was fun because we would take these condoms and stuff them with slime, methacellulose or methacell slime, and uh, uh, cut up these little bits of foam and, and paint them and stuff them in there. And then they would take a little, a, a squib, you know, a little explosive that pyrotechnicians would stick on that. And they also had uh, like a manifold that would blow out from the back of the head. Uh, so they had air pressure. So it's like a mini air cannon that would shoot out, you know, eject the face right at the, the uh, microwave 
window, and they also had a little squib on the windows so that it would it would crack as this happened. So all these things happened to happen at the same time, and I'm underneath this thing. And you know, luckily these were professional pyrotechnicians. I didn't get hurt in the process, but I was wearing a raincoat, and and so all this this glop from the ground comes raining down on me at the conclusion of the shot, which was a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, I got some experience puppeteering. Um, let's see. Aside from, oh yeah, a lot of time was spent on casting up gremlins, which were the bodies, because there were, I counted something like 72 of the more reptilian monster gremlins were made for this film, because there are crowd scenes, even though, you know, the Dream Quest uh, made it look like there were more people in that movie crowd, there were still quite a lot of these gremlins. Um, and then once you cast them up, you have to seam them. They have this flashing or these seams all along, just like in a plastic model kit or something. And so we had to trim those down and we had to cover them with latex and we had to put little bumps on them. And quite a lot of time and effort went into just seaming the gremlins. <laughs> I remember Valerie Sofranco, who worked on the gremlins and many other projects with Chris Wallace, she said to me when we were doing the seaming, you cope really well with boredom, don't you? Because <laughs> it's not, you're working on an exciting film, but it is, when you have that many of the same creature, it is a factory in a sense. It's a gremlin factory, but it's a factory. Um, but yeah, I was so excited to be involved in this. And I got to work on the mechanical aspect. I didn't design any of it. That was left to people who knew more than me. You know, I'd done a little lip snarl for the werewolf for Zizek is King and as a film student. But I hadn't done anything as sophisticated as what they were doing on that film. Um, they had radio control. They had cable control for the most part. The most spectacular thing is something you can barely appreciate. It was the gremlin super arms that, um, that were made. I know that Gary Plattick and... Um, Tim Gillette and Evan Strongquist and even Tom St. Amand were involved in mechanical aspects. But I couldn't tell you who invented what because it was already together by the time I saw it. And um, so the super arms were uh, a slave system, master slave system or a Waldo system, whereby there were two armatures that were like the mechanical arms for this gremlin. And also had these wonderful finger mechanisms that looked just like, you know, a, an industrial robot hand would look. And when you would move the master armature, the very same movements would be translated into the, the slave or, or the wall, the, uh, you know, the, the puppet. Yeah. Um, but it was barely used, and I think largely because it was still a hand puppet, and there would still be an elbow coming out of the butt of this creature. <laughs> so <laughs> you didn't really gain a lot by not having rods on the arms. And so almost any shot you see in the movie, if the arms are moving at all, the rod puppet is just like a puppet. You know? But there were also facial mechanics, and I got to assemble a bunch of those. And um, I, I remember in in uh, the making of Dark Crystal, they said one of the Skeksis had 28 cables coming out of the head. So that makes it kind of heavy and, 
and a little unwieldy, but it gives you all kinds of wonderful expression. I counted that Stripe, the one that had the, you know, the mohawk on it, um, it had 32 cables, so it had even more than the most complicated uh, Skeksis uh, villainous creature from Dark Crystal. So I thought that was something that they should be proud of. <laughs> um, so also, as, as I was saying, I did get to do some puppeteering. I was not the major puppeteer. Um, if you even try just to hold your hand up in the air for many minutes or hours on end, and then you put a weight on it with, with this, this puppet, with all the cable controls, it's pretty heavy. <laughs> even though these did have vacuform skulls, which was pretty cool, because uh, earlier these kinds of things would have just been fiberglass, which is much heavier and, and takes more space. Still, it, it takes some serious arms, so the people who were puppeteering on that, my hat's off to them, because I don't know if I could have held my arm up that, that well and, and performed for as long as they did. I was just involved in some of the, you know, more often some of the, the bigger scenes, like the theater, movie theater scene or the bar scene where you had a lot of gremlins. And I, could, I could do a little gremlin action. And they, would, they wouldn't count on me to do all that much. But it was cool. We had uh, TV monitors, and they could reverse the TV monitor so you'd see the mirror image instead of, you know, so that, that made it a little bit easier sometimes to, to face the gremlin the right way and, and to move it around. But it depended on if you were interacting with people, you had to, you know, be careful how <laughs> which way they were looking and that they were doing the right thing. It was fun to watch uh, the trainer work with the dog, like, when, when this uh, this fluffy doggy was supposed to get really angry and bark, the uh, animal trainer had this like big teddy bear toy that he'd like shake at it, and the dog knew when when this teddy bear was shaking that it was supposed to bark and, and get real angry looking. <laughs> so it was just fun to see how things worked. And of course, you know, it was a big crew when you got on the sets. Uh, I didn't meet all the actors, but of course, Phoebe Cates was in the bar scene, so I did see that for some of the shots I was there. Um, Hoyt Axton was really wonderful. He would he would treat the crew to, uh, he would serenade them on guitar. He would sing, uh, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, you know, Joy to the World, that song, and uh, bought everybody lunch uh, that day, one day that I was there. And also uh, for uh, other days when I wasn't there, he was, he was doing that other days as well. So a real, real nice guy. Um, there were uh, there was a time when we were doing the close-up mogwai, so the furry guys, there was one that was like three times life-size so that more mechanics get packed into it. Because uh, those those mogwais were small. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't, you know, they were, they were hand puppets to a degree, but they weren't like gremlins where you could stick your whole hand in their head. And um, so there was this oversized one that uh, we were puppeteering and Steven Spielberg happened to come by and he was underneath the, the floor puppeteering along with us. Um, you know, he likes to get his hands in there every now and then. He's, he's kind of like, you know, a grown-up kid. He's still got that enthusiasm for these, these things and he was executive producer. But because he was executive producer and this was a big top-secret project at the time, Mark Wallace, who was Chris Wallace's brother, 
and was on the crew. Uh, he took all the, the crew pictures. We weren't supposed to like pull out cameras and take pictures of these things. One picture did leak out to the Boston Globe, I think, one of these trashy newspapers that you find at the grocery store. And uh, that was probably from a toy manufacturer because they have to make the toys long in advance of the picture. And there was one, you know, kind of bad picture of a gremlin long before the movie came out, and people were pissed about that. <laughs> it's always, I always hate it when people try to spoil movies because you want to get they want to get their their sales their clicks nowadays and those kind of things and they're always trying to get people like oh let me know let me know and all these little details and I'm thinking which is fine I can understand what they're trying to do but for me I just I'd rather just find out when I get there and get to see the experience mm-hmm. and enjoy it uh, you know you know the trailers enough nowadays spoil enough of the movie that the film oh. the filmmakers are putting out yeah. let alone what other people are trying to do. Yeah, it's a different world. It's like back then, you had trailers like for Alien and for Gremlins, and you didn't really know what you were going to see. You just kind of got a feeling, and that was enough. Nowadays, yeah, they, they'll show you the whole movie. <laughs> Some people just simply will not watch trailers at all because they don't want spoiled for them. And nowadays, it's like if you buy the video box, you, know, you buy the DVD or Blu-ray, that Gremlin is right on the cover. There's no... <laughs> <laughs> There's no mystery about it. But then by now there have been toys and lunch boxes and, you know, all that kind of thing. So it's hard to keep secrets. But, you know, now I hear like uh, Frank Ippolito has a podcast and, and he talks about how they have these IPs, you know, these these projects they work on where they say they're never allowed to have pictures of these things they work on ever. <laughs> and it's like, well, then you can't really compile a portfolio because <laughs> there's there's nothing to work with there, you know. Um, but Gremlins was exceptional. Other films, I was able to take pictures behind the scenes so I could show what I was working on, and and that's very beneficial. And also, so with with Gre- yeah, with Gremlins, there was the magazine Cinefix. So after the movie came out, there were some pictures of things that I worked on, so I could stick those in my portfolio. And also by allowing the crew to take some pictures, you know, once a period of time has gone by after the movie's out and everything, they're able, you know, you have these pictures, like we're talking decades later now, where people can share, oh, this is behind the scenes. And for people of us that love the movie or love seeing how things were made, you're able to get these different perspectives and, and see it where if nobody has any pictures, then pretty much nobody, ha- nobody can see what you guys were seeing when you were doing it from your, your point of view. All you see is the finished product. And so it kind of is a sad thing for historical reasons, you know, with certain yeah, projects. Yeah. yeah, there's some history that's lost that way. But, well, you know, yeah, for for these newer things. But, you know, Mark Whalers did take a lot of pictures. So <laughs> it's not like there aren't pictures. But it wasn't like, say, Dark Crystal, where there was a whole documentary showing all these people behind the scenes working on it. So it wasn't that situation either. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I remember... <laughs> like when they would show Dark Crystal, making of Dark Crystal on TV, I would I would take a snapshot of of the video as it was showing because I didn't have like a physical copy of the video at the time, um, and and I would put that in a little scrapbook I kept of all these mechanical things, whatever I could find from 
Cinemagic magazine or Cinefax, you know. And uh, with Gremlins, what I did do, though, is I took lots of notes, and I would, I would draw little pictures of how the mechanisms were done and everything so that for future reference, because <laughs> my memory's not perfect, I could I could go back and say, oh, yeah, that's how we did this. And, and this is the kind of table we were using, and, you know. This is this is how the, the servos were hooked up and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I didn't necessarily do things exactly the same way, but I would I would make my own contraptions and, and they would kind of they, they would kind of spring forth from this accumulation of knowledge. And so I would say it's what was most critical for me is the animatronics that I learned from Gremlins. Because I went on to do a lot of animatronics, and that's why John Beekler hired me to work on dolls and From Beyond. And I had a little bit to do with Spellcaster and Vicious Lips, which was called Pleasure Planet at the time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so uh, it was You're leading me right into it. I was about to ask you thing. with the animatronics, you went into yeah. From Beyond, and you're, you're leading yes. me right into that segue perfectly. You know, because so you've got a lot of um, – knowledge and the thing is I think a lot of people realize you can read certain things you can study certain things but it's by physically doing these things and the trial and error as you can go through it as you did with gremlins with the whole crews that were there you're able to see how this all works so what was it like going into from beyond a couple years later yeah well okay so the first thing that I did for John Beaker was dolls where it was this transformation that occurs at the end of the film that I worked on, kind of a change head That's as much as I'm going to say because I don't want to spoil it for people. But uh, From Beyond Then um, was quite an experience, but uh, other people had very different experiences. So there were a number of shops working on that movie. You had John Nolan's shop that had John Criswell as the mechanic. You had um, <laughs> yeah, Mark Showstrom's shop that had uh, Dave Kindlin as the mechanic. Those two guys went with some other members of the crew actually to Italy. I was not one of the people who went to Italy. So like Jean Criswell would like kick in and help fix if there was something that wasn't working from our shop. You know, there was a lot of cross fertilization, a lot of collaboration going on there. But anyhow, I was involved mostly in this sort of shrimp monster that appears in the film and some of the intermediary uh, intermediate forms getting to that shrimp monster form. And um, so there were, you know, a lot of effects on that film and all these shops working together. I mean, there was like one special effects guy who did, I think, optical. And he would kind of oversee the different shops to make sure that things were going to work together. Um, so I was also involved in, so I, I mechanized the, the miniature of that shrimp creature, <laughs> the flying shrimp creature. And I also uh, was involved in sculpting the body of the full-size shrimp creature along with Bill Forsh. Uh, he and I worked on that, and then other people worked on other parts of that thing. And you know, there was uh, there was a lot to do, and it was 
uh, let's see, Gino Cragnali is the one who who uh, sculpted the miniature of that shrimp monster, and then the the big one was based on that. And I, I just loved uh, the sculpture that he did. I think that he was doing some really bizarre and wild and wonderful stuff uh, for this low budget movie. Uh, he and other people on the crew had already worked for Tom Savini and, and other people. And, um, you know, it, John Beekler's shop is one of those shops along with Makeup Effects Lab where a lot of people start there and then went on to work for some of the best in the business. And it's important to have those shops, to have had those shops. Now I think it's really a whole different world because computers have taken over so much of what we used to do uh, physically. And there aren't as many shops. So I don't know if there are as many places where you can start out unless you just do get on your own in your garage or something. So uh, that was really beneficial to have a range of options of places to work. Um, there are places who are still doing it the old fashioned way, like KNB, you know, what's left of Stan Winston's shop called Legacy Effects. And they do amazing stuff. But I don't know that they're the kind of places where you would approach if you were just a beginner right out of school. <laughs> because they've got so many people who are so good at, at doing this stuff. It's, it's probably a little bit harder to get started. On the other hand, the information of how to do things is available. And access to people, I mean, you can at least find out how to contact these shops, which was mysterious in the past. But on the other hand, that means there's a lower bar and everybody does how to contact these shops. You know, if they've got a Facebook page or something, you know, I, I'm sure even Chris Wayless after Gremlins, he was probably inundated with people who wanted to work for him once that came out because that really put his name up there in the credits. He was, you know, really big once that happened. Um, and the thing about working on a big show <laughs> the uh, grim reality is that if you work on a big show, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to work on the next show that that shop is doing because most of the people won't be. It isn't, you know, the next show, if the, and that, unless the next show is as big or bigger, they're going to need less people. And, and you're only hired, well, typically only hired for as long as they need you for a project. There are shops, you know, maybe the bigger shops like Legacy and KNB, maybe they keep people on. I know that back in the day, Stan Winston and Rick Baker would keep a handful of people who were their very best people and just keep them employed, even if there wasn't a movie they were working on at the time. But um, in, in my case, I wasn't one of those people, <laughs> which is okay. I understood that. I could see the work that other people were doing. And I could see that I was better than some people, but I wasn't as good as other people. And so if I didn't get a job, I wasn't like, oh, that meanie, how dare they? <laughs> Why didn't they hire me? I understood, you know, I kind of understood my place in the business for the most part. I think sometimes I felt like I was being underestimated, but in retrospect, you know, it's probably relatively fair <laughs> the way things turned out. And as I've said, I'm so lucky to have worked on the projects I did. I could have just been doing blood and guts 
you know, a, a Tom Savini did blood and guts for lots of films, but he said he really was into creatures. <laughs> and so he got pigeonholed because he was so damn good at that stuff. I probably would have done better on say my last film scanners too, if I had some experience with blood and guts, because there were times when they would have liked some, something simple that wasn't like a whole mechanical puppet um, to, to, to get, to get things started on the actor. You know, um, Mike Smithson was in charge of that show and there was some amazing stuff that went on, on that one, some great artists working for him. And before this guy's head blows out, <laughs> they wanted, they wanted to have a sense that something was going to happen on the actor itself himself. And we tried, you know, squirting some blood through tubes and, you know, we just didn't have the experience of doing it. You know, you really need pressurized air. You really need to get a volume to come out quickly. Um, Dick Smith had come up with an idea that I should have used if only I had remembered it. And that is that you could actually blow like red powder out and that would be enough for a quick cut before you show, you know, the, the money shot where it really blows out. Um, and in retrospect, I should have, I should have done that. I should have said, let's use powder, but I, I just didn't have that in my head at the time. Um, well, they always say hindsight is twenty twenty, and you know, it's, yeah, it's exactly. I, I don't have a lot of regrets. You know, I really don't. I think on the whole things turn out pretty well. Not to say everything worked the first time, but, you know, all in all, uh, people didn't get too pissed off at me, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> that, that's the thing about these, these creature effects. If you're doing it on set and it's especially some kind of a transformation or something's supposed to blow up or something, it's like it works or it doesn't work. Maybe it halfway works. But, you know, sometimes there's there's no second takes. And, and uh they just get what they can get. I remember um, John Beekler had worked for Roger Corman on some of his later films, you know, the, the uh, what was it called? Uh, New World Pictures. Yeah, New World Pictures. Um, not the old AIP stuff, but the New World Pictures. John Beekler would work for him. And he said <laughs> that, in, you know, in the morning as, as they were about to shoot, Roger Corman would say, okay, where's, where's the disembodied head? He wouldn't even look at it. He would just, John would hand it to him. He'd run off to the set with it. Okay, where, where are the creature hands? Okay, he would just grab them. He wouldn't even look at them. He would just go. All Roger Corman cared with, the bottom line was they had to get the shots. So they had to have something to throw in front of that camera, and somehow they'd make it work. And I remember John Beekler would sometimes say, uh, Seven frames, cover it in blood. <laughs> Meaning, if, if the shot is quick enough and it's covered in blood, you're not going to really get to discriminate how, how high quality this, this effect is. <laughs> it just goes by in, in, in a, an instant. You know, there, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of trickery. I, I didn't even realize when I was a film student that when people would do a punch or a slap somebody in the face, that it was kind of camera trickery that they were they were pulling punches they weren't actually <laughs> getting even that close to the face or, or slapping the face and uh, 
I'm, I'm really glad they do it that way because otherwise people would get awfully beat up. Yeah, because you always hope that person will pull it up at the last second, and if they don't, it's like, oh, that's going to hurt. And if, and if you just hit the lead actor or actress in the face and, and you leave a mark, ooh, yeah, ooh. That, that would not be yeah. – I think your career would be going down fast as a stunt person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. You're, you know, you're not necessarily walking on eggshells, but especially when you're starting out, you don't want to blow it. <laughs> You don't want to screw the pooch, as they say, because, man, you could get a reputation. And if somebody asks, you know, asks how you did on a, a job and and it's not good, <laughs> you're not going to get the next next job. And I, I know that's happened with people. And I luckily, I don't think I was often in that position. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound like it. Yeah. sounds like you had a lot of people telling you, hey, we got this work over here, or look, there's work coming over here. So you had people telling you where to go. And so if they were to contact them, they're, they're the same people yeah. that referred you. That'd be kind of weird. Somebody says, hey, Ralph, go over here and get a job. Then they call, what do you think about Ralph? Oh, don't hire Ralph. Now that's just, <laughs> that would be somebody that's he evil. <laughs> that's somebody that's evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tom Flouts was another guy who tipped me off. He had I worked with him on uh, at John Beekler's shop, and and he tipped me off to the Blob, and he tipped me off to Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and both of those are really important films to me, and I think they're just really fun and amazing films overall. You know, outside of what I did on them, it's just I love. I mean, Killer I, Clowns from Outer Space. So yeah. go go into detail here because. This is one of my favorites. It always, and my children love it too. It always puts a smile on our faces when you watch this film. It's what, as you said, uh, 35 years ago. It came out in 1988. Yeah. So it's 35th anniversary, but it's still the clowns. I mean, you, the, the, oh, I just love it. The way they look, the way they interact with everybody. It's just perfect. And the John Vernon's acting as the one, the sheriff person. I just love it. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going to make a dummy out of me. He says, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, you know, it's just uh, such brilliant creativity went into that. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the Kyoto brothers and their sculptors. They had James Cagle, who was just amazing. He had worked on John Carpenter's The Thing among many other projects. And, uh, Derek DeVoe uh, sculpted something for it as well. And, uh, you know, you just see Charlie Kyoto's drawings, his, his sketches, his concepts. And you see the sculptures that James Cagle, Derek DeVoe were doing. And it's like, I cannot believe this is happening. You know, it's just so wonderful. It's like those things are as, as wonderful as any character I've ever seen in any movie. And the fact that I got to work on these things, that I got to mechanize and puppeteer these things. Dwight Roberts was kind of in charge. He was kind of like foreman of the shop. And he was involved in a lot of the nitty gritty of how the mechanical stuff was going to work. And, uh, you know, like I'd hear from Scott Ressler back from USC days, he said that Rick Baker had this deal where if there was a radio control uh, creature that he had it so that you could either use radio control with your your little 
you know, RC controls like you get at a hobby shop to control them, or you could plug it in and wire directly from those controls so there wasn't any radio interference problem, which came in handy in uh, Critters too. I myself didn't actually know how to implement that, but I told that to Dwight Roberts, and he figured it out because he's got a better engineering mind than I have. <laughs> but I digress because that's Critters too. We're talking about Kyoto Brothers, uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, you know, it was it was a very fun crew. It was again not a huge crew. It was not that big crew, but um, there was just some amazing stuff. This guy named Jarn Heil did uh, some of the mechanical stuff, the big heavy duty hardware stuff. Like he made the big mechanical clown hand for the climax of the movie, <laughs> and uh, you know it's just like King Kong. You know this big ass hand that grabs uh, that grabs the, the policeman in the movie at the end of the movie and it's like wow he also devised the, the mechanism whereby this clown would be floating alongside the car and like it's just floating in the air and uh, bumping up against the, the car running it off the road you know that was a heavy duty piece of machinery um I don't know. It was quite a project, that, that one. And, you know, they didn't have a lot of money, but the Kyoto Brothers had ingenuity, and they had people they worked with. Uh, some of these people had worked on the first Critters movie. And, you know, it just, it just really came together. Because they had, you know, it was their movie, 100%. They, they wrote it, you know, directed, produced came up with short, you know, Charlie, the storyboards and the designs and the art direction. And, you know, they, they knew they could have done everything themselves. They were capable. There was not, not much that was happening in the shop that they didn't know how to do themselves, but, you know, they were writing and directing and, you know, Charlie did all the paint jobs on the clowns. And I mean, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where you look at it and you, 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 you like feel like pinching yourself because you can't believe that it's not a dream. Um, and, and they were, they were a blast to work with. And, and it's so funny, such a sense of humor. I mean, you can tell from the movie they they've got sense of humor, <laughs> these people, and they're so creative and, and they had a stop motion background as well as, as the puppetry and things like that. Um, they, they were just, these phenomenally creative people. It's like, I think of my relationship with my brother and I can't imagine doing anything collaboratively with him. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that they were able to, to get along and stick it out for this long and, you know, up to this day, still worked on uh, Marcel Elva Tuzon and, you know, they've, they've done all kinds of wild and crazy things. You know, I'd say that Probably the funniest of them is Charlie, but they all have sense of humor, no question about it. And um, Charlie, to this day, he still compulsively draws and paints clowns. You know, if you see him at a convention, he'll be just working away at a, at a clown illustration, and they, they sell posters of him. And the funny thing is, I mean, you can get all kinds of, merch these days related to that show 
And um, the Kyoto brothers don't make any money from that stuff. They don't get any residuals from that. But they can sell, sell Charlie's posters and they can sign posters and that kind of thing. And, you know, they get interviewed and it's, it's really fun. Um, let's see. So, so Charlie would design things. Um, often Stephen was the sculptor. So they could all do some degree of everything, probably. And um, then uh, Ed, Edward was the mechanical genius of the three. <laughs> so, so between them, it was, it was quite a, an amazing collaboration. And they've worked on a lot of really cool stuff over the years. And uh, a lot of the people who they worked with on Clowns worked with them on a number of projects. Um, I don't know. What, what do you want to know about Clowns? Well, I don't need to know everything about Clowns, but what particular was your role in the in Killer Clowns? Because one day I'm hoping to do an episode where we do Killer Clowns from Outer Space and then can go into a deeper dive with all the stuff. But because so, you're listed as a fabricator, so I'm not sure exactly. You know, and sometimes they give you one title, but that doesn't mean that's the only thing you did. It could be any number of things under the sun when you especially when you said it's a, not a big crew yes yes okay uh so primarily i was involved in the mechanical facial aspects of the clowns and also in puppeteering and when i said puppeteering it's that's also collaborative as as was the mechanical stuff um to a degree so so you'd have Dwight Roberts who really knew how to do everything <laughs> and he was the foreman and he did a lot of stuff himself. And so like on, for a couple of the mechanical skulls, I would work with him on them. You know, he'd kind of get it started and I'd take it from there. Um, for another one of the skulls, the mechanical skulls, um, uh, another individual worked on it with me and, so there was some collaboration there, but I was involved in three skulls and I'm saying three skulls rather than three characters because each skull had double duty. You may not notice it when you see the movie, but of the primary characters of, of say six of them, they were pairs based on the same head sculpture. The noses and ears would be changed. The makeup and hair would be changed. But the basic sculpture of the face, that form, was the same. So we could take them off of one and put them onto another with Velcro. But then on the eyelids, we had to glue those on, you know, with a with a nice industrial glue. And then we'd have to use a solvent to to peel them off again to to swap faces on <laughs> swap the faces onto the skull. Um, I didn't work on all of the mechanical skulls. There were a couple of more. There was uh, there was one the one that was in the the police station. I didn't work on that one, and the uh, the big monster at the end. I didn't work on that one either. But um, I did work on other principal characters, and then for the walkarounds, for the ones that weren't really big heads, they were very tight to the faces, so there wasn't room for all those facial mechanics. But they did have blinks that were radio controlled. And so I'd be involved in installing those. And then I was also involved in mechanizing the creatures that 
tap out um, and go after Debbie, played by Suzanne Snyder, in the bathroom. Those monsters that we call the popcorn monsters. You know, one pops out of the hamper and the other one comes out of the shower. Um, and so I was involved in mechanizing the smaller ones because the big one was a hand puppet. And they were interesting because uh, for the wider shots, they'd be mechanized. Uh, they, they'd, <laughs> well, they'd be marionetted, and then they'd have little radio control jaw movement. And then for other shots, the jaw movement would be cable controlled, and they'd be on a rod as they were like first popping out of the hamper. So they did double duty. You'd have both the servo inside of the skull and you'd have the capability to swap it over so that it worked with the cable instead. And the cable control was just based on those, uh, you know, little alligator or dinosaur puppets that you, you buy at the zoo or museum stores. <laughs> that, that was, that was where I got the idea of how to, how to make those things work. It's quite simple. Um, you know, so it's an interesting mix. You know, there's a really industrial stuff like, like the floating clown that Jarn Heil did. And then there's the, the little stuff like these little snapping puppets uh, that popped out of the hamper. And when we were shooting that, we were kind of straddling these flats, you know, these, these walls that were constructed to be the bathroom walls. And it was a little bit dicey, especially when they, they turned out the lights at the end of the day and we're in the dark and we're kind of straddling these, these, uh, these wall sets. And I, I kind of freaked out a little bit and said, Hey, turn the lights on. We're going to die up here. You know? <laughs> I was afraid we might fall down because we couldn't see anything. We didn't fall down. But as you probably know, there are times in films where something does go wrong and somebody gets hurt or people are very close to getting hurt. You know, luckily I haven't been involved in any of those situations. Because, you know, we all love our movies. We don't want to die for them. <laughs> we don't want that happening. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a point, where you, you know, everybody has to draw a line and nobody wants anybody to ever get hurt when pulling off a gag or special effect or whatever the case might be. And it's always good. I mean, you could take every safety precaution in the book, but sometimes a th something will just so fluky happen. It, it, it does happen. And other times, sadly, there's situations where the filmmakers did not take all the appropriate safety precautions, especially yeah. movies in the past. And, and, and oh, yeah. things could happen and, 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 or, or, or come very close to happen. I know a lot of Italian spaghetti Westerns. I've heard stories where people could be literally killed just if, if one thing would have went a different way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, treatment of animals was different in the past. Um, I, there weren't any problems on the sets I worked on, but, uh, you know, like the old Westerns, when you see those horses do a somersault, that's because they had a tripwire on them. That means they had wires that were attached to their, their hooves. And when they ran a certain distance, that would just <laughs> pull, you know, they, that would just stop those feet where they were and they would do a somersault. And I'm sure a lot of them broke bones and, and got killed that way. Nowadays, you'll see instead of, doing a somersault, the horse will rear back and fall down. They're trained to do that, and there's no trip wires involved, and the horses are okay with that. 
but stunts can be dangerous. A lot of stunts are simple, but, you know, people doing all these car stunts and jumps and things, sometimes it's a calculated risk. I remember reading an article about stuntman. He, he did a car stunt where it was doing a jump and it was like crazy distance and ended up, you know, damaging his, his back and might've broken a couple of bones. He was saying, mm, I should have charged more for that stunt. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's grim, but sometimes to get that shot, to get that thing happening, a lot of uh, chances are taken. But of course now you see a movie and, they could be completely suspended on big, massive cables and things, and and things are safer. Uh, you still though some some movies like you see uh, Mad Max Fury Road. It's like you know some of that stunt action is really happening. <laughs> They're taking chances there, but it's amazing and and it's a different feeling, right? You. You used to see the James Bond movies where there's a stunt at the beginning of the scene that's just incredible. And you knew that there was really somebody really doing that. And now it could be a CG double. Who knows? <laughs> so it's a different feeling when you watch that. But on the other hand, like I said, I don't want people getting hurt. <laughs> so, so I have mixed feelings about that. Yeah, we don't want anybody to get hurt. And for listeners, my dog is barking in the background. I don't know what he's barking at. So I was I'm, I'm like muting myself when Ralph is talking and <laughs> you know, kind of, that way we don't hear him as much. The blob. Cause you talked about the it. blob, the blob. <laughs> yes. Yes. Cause you're listed as that a blob mechanic. I mean, I don't know what the world, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even do that. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's really different from the first blob, if you've seen both of them. Uh, the first one was mostly this big uh, mass of silicone material that would kind of roll down a ramp into a miniature or something. And uh, this one was a lot livelier than that. And the effects were much more grotesque because <laughs> you'd actually see people being dis dissolved. So... Um, the blob shop was interesting because there were it was there was a line right down the middle in tape. On one side, you had Tony Gardner's Altarian Studios. On our side, we had Lyle Conway's shop. Now Lyle Conway had just come off of working in England um, with uh, he had just finished working on Little Shop of Horrors not too long before, and so. He was riding high from that, but um, here's another case where the movie was well underway. Oh, okay, let, let me just say the, the responsibilities. So Tony Gardner's side was all involved in the people, you know, the, the melting people and that kind of stuff, the people being digested before your eyes. And indeed, I think some of their effects are easily on par with some of the work in John Carpenter's thing. And in fact, they had many of the same people working on it. Um, I was working on Lyle Conway's side, and we were involved in the blob itself, the blob creature, which looks quite different in different shots. And if you looked at the original storyboards, which I, I have copies of the original storyboards by 
Peter von Scholle, um, they would have liked the blob to have been able to do more than we were able to pull off. Now, I think there was a long research and development phase where they were trying to figure out just how to make this happen. Mark Satrakian was sort of the foreman of the shop. Um, but if everything was, of course, uh, under the approval and direction of Lau Conway. Lau Conway, is, I thought of him mostly as a, a sculptor prior to that. He sculpted Miss Piggy for the Muppets. He sculpted uh, Agra and some of the Skeksis uh, for Dark Crystal. You know, he'd, he'd done some really amazing stuff like that. And there's a movie called The Daytime Ended that he sculpted stop motion characters for. Um, so I, I was a great admirer of his work. Um, and Mark Satrakian was the foreman of the shop. Mark Satrakian had, uh, was, was an amazing mechanical designer. But this was a very challenging movie. Um, when Tom Flouts tipped me off to this project, he said he'd never heard so many horror stories <laughs> about what it was like to work on a movie as this movie. And so this is what I was getting into. But, you know, <laughs> it's the blob. How can you not work on it? I, I needed a job, and this looked like it could be really cool. And indeed, it was. I mean, look at my luck, though. I mean, I, I worked on a film by the Kyoto Brothers. I worked on Gremlins, which was Joe Dante's work. I'm working for Chris Wales, of course. I, I got to work on this, which is directed by Chuck Russell. Um, and, and later I worked for, you know, on Critters 2 for McGarris. I mean, I couldn't ask for, for better people to be in charge of these movies. And then the people I was working for more directly were also really, I, I just really admired the work that they did. So I had great admiration for Lyle Conway, but it was a very challenging project because they want you to do physically the stuff that is a lot easier to draw on paper <laughs> than it is to, to pull off. And in that case, the blob itself was oftentimes made of what was called what was called quilts, where there was silk that had these sort of pockets all through them. You know, so you've got two layers of silk and and you've got these kind of, I don't know, kind of imagine like a grid of squares and each square is a pocket and it's, it's sealed except there's a hole in it and the hole was for pumping slime into it. So just like our bodies, it was mostly liquid. It was mostly slime, but it had this very fine, delicate, and uh, airbrush-painted um, surface on the inside and outside that provided this look that was quite unique and quite organic. There were also tentacle mechanisms that were usually used inside of uh, hot-melt vinyl pieces or hot-pour vinyl. It's uh, the same thing fishing lures are made of. It's been used for makeup sometimes, but it was used for tentacles. And so 
we made a lot of tentacle mechanisms. Some were kind of like uh, a flat piece of uh, plastic with uh, these various little loops in them, and you'd pull on a cable and it would curl up. Or some were like a, a series of discs, which you'd use like if you're doing a, a tail or an octopus tentacle as well. You know, it's a very standard way of doing things. And uh, there were, you know, joysticks for controlling these tentacles. And, you know, <laughs> there were there were some that, things that were a little more involved. Like um, there were little mechanical people. And I worked on uh, a mechanical person that was 22 inches high that had 22 axes of movement. That I, I I explained in the Decades of Horror podcast, but um, it was uh, somewhat based on what I saw at the Gremlin shop, where there was one armature controlling another, and so all the joints were identical. So we had we farmed out to a, a machinist to make the parts, and then you just have rods of various lengths, and then you had you know discs in the spine and the neck and. The wrists were uh, slightly different because they had to be smaller to fit inside of the, the body. But but it was essentially standardized parts. So you could just say, here, make a lot of these. <laughs> and they were made. And then it took forever to, to thread all these cables and cut everything to size and put on the hand controls and everything. Um, so that was a very involved uh, thing. That was for where the what was called the Loudmouth Theater Patron, where they're watching the Garden Tool Massacre's movie on the screen, and this patron gets snapped up by the, the blob. Interestingly, there was actually a 3D-printed uh, simple wax head that was the basis for... It was touched up by Mitch Devane, who I'd worked with also at Beeper's shop, so that it looked like the actor. They had scanned his face, and they 3D-printed it, Rather than doing a life cast um, or, or doing an original sculpture, so uh, it was kind of high tech for the time. And uh, ironically, and, and there were even little uh, dental acrylic plastic teeth inside of his mouth, and his head and his jaw moved and everything. But ironically, I think that the shot is so quick that you don't even see the head at all. It's already inside the blob. And the purpose, of course, of having miniature people with your blob material is so that it makes the blob look like it's a giant monster instead of just something that would fit on a table. <laughs> um, but it was, a, it was a grueling shoot, and it was tough because we never had quite enough time and money on Lyle Conway's side. Tony Gardner's side, they were really together they pulled off amazing stuff and they, they were always on time and on budget on our side. We were always struggling to keep up and sometimes, you know, new things would come in that we had to do that we weren't aware of before. And it was a little rough. So one thing that people may not realize is that when you work on a job like that in those days, anyway, it's not a nine to five thing. <laughs> You're working as many hours as they can squeeze out of you. In fact, one night, I just had to get some sleep, and it was, I don't know, three in the morning or something. And I said, I have to check on something in my car, just a minute. 
and I drove off because I just had to get some sleep. <laughs> I had to go home and sleep. Because here, we were the same crew working in the shop creating stuff that might have to be puppeteering early in the morning. So there's not a lot of time for sleeping there if you're working late into the night making the mechanical things. But we were always behind and always trying to catch up. And that was that was a problem. So ultimately, Lau Conway was fired from the show. And that was really devastating for all of us who enjoyed working with him so much. And, you know, I think he was kind of a fall guy. It's like he was in a, a difficult spot because they had all these incredible things they wanted to see on the screen. But we weren't getting the money and the time that we needed to to really do them. And, you know, especially much less really figure out new ways of doing things. We just had to keep plowing forward and doing the best we could. So ultimately, it was it was taken over by Stuart Ziff. Um, you know, some of the work had already been shot, and you know, he he and some other <laughs> high-profile uh, effects people like Howie Weed were brought in to kick in and and really finish thing finish the job. And in the end, you know, I don't know. Have you seen the film? Yes, I saw it when it came out. You know, and, and yeah, and a couple times since. And I think I think you're. The problem you guys have is anytime you're dealing with a mindless creature, which, you know, assuming it's real, it's, it's always going to be that the nature of the beast. I mean, it's the blob. I mean, it's, it's, it was destroying the people trying to make it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think, I think it's a good film. I think that it's one of those films that really didn't get a lot of love when it came out, but has people have since come around to it and come to appreciate some of the, innovative work that was involved in it you know and i i just i think there's some really cool bits with just the character interplay and you know the script i think is, is solid i enjoy both the original blob <laughs> excuse me and this version of the blob because they hit two different parts of my body you know parts of my mind you know and also they're 30 years apart and your blob is the more scary version you know the one where you're going to see some like you said, the gore, the effects, you, you're, you, you know, if you want to see what a blob is going to do to the human body, you're going to see it in your version of the blob compared to the other one. Yeah. It's real nasty. <laughs> it's, it's not for the little ones, you know, whereas the old one is quite, quite safe. I think, I mean, still, I, I know people have said, you know, before the new one came out, a lot of people have said, Oh, the blob that scared me so much when I was a kid, you know, it, it is the concept being engulfed by this mindless giant amoeba kind of thing. It's it's a horrifying thing. You're being suffocated and digested, and oh, that would be horrible. Yep. <laughs> that would be a bad way to go. I've even seen yeah, the um, Beware the Blob. So it's like I've seen all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Every now and then I hear about someone planning to remake the blob and I don't know if that will happen or not, but obviously if they did, it would be a lot of computer graphics work because that's, that's the kind of effects that are available now. But of course, a lot of people appreciate what was done in the eighties with the practical effects. A lot of them have held up really well, especially compared to early computer graphics, which were kind of dodgy. 
you know, or some some graphics today, you know, are, are marginal. But uh, you know, I'm I'm not one of these people who's like either or. Like you have to have practical effect all the way. You can't have CG. It's like you can't make a movie like Cocaine Bear with people in bear suits. It's not going to play. <laughs> and I love my Cocaine Bear. So I mean, it's it. it I, somebody asked yeah. me though. Was the CGI realistic? I said it was realistic enough to make the movie work for me. I mean, it wasn't, is it? And that's all that mattered. That's all I was looking for is like, is it going to be close enough? And my son, actually, my oldest son, Ben, has seen it twice. So he, he really enjoyed it. So it's, uh, he, he liked, he liked the cocaine bear. Yeah. And it teaches, teaches an important lesson. Don't, don't play hooky. Bad things might happen. Yeah. <laughs> Go to school, kids. And, and don't be a drug dealer and, and jump out of a plane. Yeah. Yeah, bad things can happen that way, too. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, comparing practical effects to the, the computer-generated effects, I think it's kind of hard, but looking at it as a movie-goer myself, yes, I can see how some stop-motion and practical effects are, let's say, not real. They're like, they stand out a little more as being not real when live action, but they have more... They, you know they're there. You feel their placement. You feel they're a part of that universe. Where the CGI on, on a lot of films looks very realistic, like in some places, but you just don't feel like it's there with the actors. It's just something about when you're watching it, it just feels uh, that there's something missing. If you if you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it it can be a different feel, although it's. It's challenging to my mind, and even though I used to work in special effects, to see, you know, to figure out which is which, because not only has CG improved to the point that it looks much more physical than it used to, and it looks more integrated, but the creature effects have gotten so much more sophisticated so that they could pass as real just as CG can, you know, I mean, obviously if you see a movie about a giant monster ravaging a city, we know it's not real because that never happens. But um, I think that both of them have gotten so good in some productions, not all, yes. <laughs> that, that uh, it, it, it baffles me, you know, I'll find out, oh, that was not CG. That was that was creature effects. It was animatronics. Or, oh, that was actually that was uh, CG, but it, it could have been animatronics. You know, I, I do appreciate people who use both. I think that's really the ideal for the most part. I mean, with Cocaine Bear, I don't know if they they had maybe a a paw or something that was that was practical, but with that one, you wouldn't really need or benefit from a practical costume for much of anything that I can think of. But um, for some things, you know, like they can make more movies like John Carpenter's The Thing using CG as the prequel named The Thing was, but it's not an improvement, you know, some things were so good that they couldn't be better. You know, I think that some of those things still really hold up. As some early CG, you look at the T-Rex and the animatronic in Jurassic Park, and 
that looks damn good. Yep. <laughs> it really yes, it does. does. Yeah. You know, it kind of depends on who's doing it and what the resources and, you know, experiences and tools are, you know, it's, uh, I'm not an either or person, but there are some movies like I love how Guillermo del Toro will mix the two. It's it's just the perfect blend. He has, you know, when you have someone in charge who has that kind of eye, that kind of visual sense, someone who's really uh, just <laughs> just a, a real designer, just the way they think, the way they look at things, um, that that can make all the difference in the world. So, Ralph, what have you been up to since the movies? You know, you know, what have you been, what have, what have you been doing in recent years? Anything of a, anything of note that you want to tell anybody, or just just enjoying <laughs> enjoying the, the labors of your past love? Yeah. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, after I worked in movies, I did do other kinds of work. Like I did some. Uh, I worked at a place called Academy Studio where we did natural history museum dioramas. You know, you go to those museums and you wonder who made that stuff. Well, there are companies that do that, and I did work for them for a bit. I worked on a, a video game called Clay Fighter way long time ago. <laughs> there was like a takeoff on Street Fighter, and so I sculpted figures for that one. There were Those animated figures were made of clay. And let's see, I, um, you know, I've had some commissioned sculptures and things of that nature, but then I took a lot of time off because I was raising our child. <laughs> we, we had a son 30 years ago. He's still our son. <laughs> and, um, I, uh, I took time off because I wasn't getting steady enough work. I was doing some model work for TV commercials and, you know, sometimes it worked for, a few weeks, sometimes a couple of months, sometimes for just a day or two. And, and there'd be a lot of time in between. So it turned out daycare was going to cost as much, if not more, than what I was making. So it's like, well, we could pay other people to uh, bring up our son or I could do it. And so that's what I did. Well, I, I have to point out that my wife was working so that we could afford to survive. <laughs> you know, when I worked in the movies, I supported myself, but barely. I wasn't really making enough money that you could raise a family and buy a house and all that kind of thing. Um, so anyhow, uh, I spent time with my son and we, you know, we did everything. We did museums and parks and playgrounds and play dates. And, you know, it's different from when I was a kid when my mom would just, you know, let us out the back door and say, be home in time for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> everything had to be worked out and, you had to work out the logistics and get-togethers and things. Um, so, you know, there's there's that. And uh, also, more recently than at a certain point, my son was old enough that I could do something full-time. And so I thought, well, I could get a job working in a hardware store or something, but I opted to learn how to become a preschool teacher, and I was doing that for a few years. But I got pneumonia twice in one year, including sepsis one of those times. And since that's the kind of thing that can kill you, <laughs> you don't want to make a habit of that. So I had to quit that, that kind of work. I went on then to work for a place that had been called the Tech Museum of Innovation, now called the Tech Interactive, 
which is a uh, science and technology museum with a lot of hands-on interactive uh, activities for um, kids of all ages. So we get people who are retired, we get young kids, we get middle schoolers, a lot of field trips because they provided field trips free for, uh, you know, schools that, that serve low-income students. Uh, so anyway, that was, it was great to be a part of that. And that was actually <laughs> six and a half years. That was the, actually the longest job I ever held. But the movie jobs were never anything like that. Um, but then COVID hit and I decided at that point, since I was getting on in years and I didn't feel, I still don't feel it's safe to, uh, for me to, to go back to a position where I'm in frequent contact with large numbers of children. I, I decided, okay, it's, it's time to, to retire and become a gentleman of leisure. So that's, that's what's up now. But um, it's not that we're not doing anything creative. Um, my wife, Gigi, and I are part of a group called the Northern California Hunters Group. And in that group, we teach one another how to make stuff, how, how to mechanize and how to fabricate, and just how to make things that some people may use for professional haunts, but most of us are just yard haunters. We just um, have a really cool yard display and sometimes interactive stuff and things that move. And, you know, in our case, we call our, our haunt, our yard, we call it Dragon Vane Cove, vane like weather vane, because on the top of our roof, we have a wind vane, a weather vane that's shaped like a dragon. And so we're a Dragon Vane Cove, and you can look on YouTube and uh, Facebook, and you can see some of the videos of the Halloweens that we've done in the past. We always add a little something, so adding something and also, of course, repairing things that broke down and wear out, <laughs> that, that is, is something that I do that's creative. And, you know, on the day itself and a couple of days around Halloween, playing the character of a pirate is fun because... Pirates are our theme, so we have, you know, a treasure chest with a monster in it. We have, you know, a watchman with a, a lantern that turns back and forth. We have a, a ghost on the porch that, that floats and moves and is, you know, got a lot of black light colors. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not like the blob. <laughs> it's not like Nightmare on the Street, the Dream Warriors. It's, it's not gory like that. It's... um. It's a kid-oriented kind of like the Haunted Mansion or you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, kind of that style of, of uh, treatment for this subject. So um, we get hundreds of kids every year, and uh, they love it, and we love it. And they always notice when there's something new, and sometimes they'll point out, hey, what happened to this or that thing that we didn't have? Because we don't have everything every year. We probably are cutting down on how much we used to just put out everything we have but since we keep making stuff we can't do that anymore and we have to watch it because we're running out of room in the attic and the back patio for these things they take some room if only we had a basement we'd have more room (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm fascinated with this because when we started this you're talking about the tunnel of terrors when you were a child (laughs) and here it is you're retired you're like Oh, let's just do this, and you, and now you got the budget that your that your young self wish he 
he had. <laughs> you have the partner yeah, a little that's like-minded. A little more know-how. Got a little more know-how than I used to have. <laughs> and a like-minded partner where you're just like, hey, let's just get this all. And, and, and now the, the neighborhood kids, everybody knows where the cool house is for Halloween. You know, mm-hmm. Go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes, yeah, there are kids that say, your house is the best. <laughs> and, um, you know, of course, they haven't seen everybody in our haunt group. Some of the other people have some pretty darn impressive stuff, too. Um, yeah, so it's 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 been a blast, you know. Now it's been a little different with COVID, but uh, even if if everything's fenced off and people can't go walking through the yard, it still uh, is an exciting experience. And I know it's the kind of thing that I would just have loved as a kid if I had seen a, a Halloween house like this. <laughs> but it's it's amazing how you know Halloween has gotten so much bigger than it used to be. It used to be just for kids. Now there are a lot of adults who love dressing up and going to parties. Um, people spend more money on Halloween than any other uh, people in the U.S. and then any other holiday aside from Christmas, which didn't used to be that way. <laughs> um, now, when I was in a, a preschool teacher, sometimes I used puppets and, and things. Oh, I also volunteered. Uh, at the California Academy of Sciences, teaching people about fossils and dinosaurs and things like that. And I taught some little classes. And um, I'm going to show you something that I did for that. So I would sometimes use my mechanical and puppetry know-how to come up with something that uh, would help me teach something or other, or at least get a lot of attention, attract, attract a lot of attention. Let's see if I can get this to work. I've worn this a while. But um, this contraption here, I'll have to kind of explain it because... Um, and they can't see it. But I will say this. You can't see it. When If you get a chance with with, yeah. with your wife, maybe she could videotape you use doing it. And I can put it on our Facebook page when your episode comes out so people can see what you're yeah, doing if you're so. interested. Uh, yeah, sure. So... I was fascinated with dinosaurs always, and I was particularly interested in the dinosaurs that uh, evolved into birds. And of course, some of the most bird-like dinosaurs were the raptor dinosaurs, like you saw in Jurassic Park. Except, of course, as we know, they should have been covered in feathers like a bird. (laughs) Um, But, so I, I made this, this is, I made a foam skull of Deinonychus, which is actually what the raptors in Jurassic Park are based on. That's what you see. So what I've got here is a contraption where I've got something on my chin and a cable that goes around my chin. And then I'm wearing a helmet. And on top of the helmet, I have this dinosaur head. And as I move my jaw, that moves jaw on dinosaur. So that's, something (laughs) that I've put together kind of for fun and also, you know, when I wanted to attract attention and teach kids about dinosaurs or adults about dinosaurs, I could give a a sense that the foam skull, it's kind of simple, simplified, but it's the actual size that those, those dinosaurs were. Um, It just, I did the same kind of thing with, 
as a preschool teacher, I, I made like a, a giant, a big uh, snail hand puppet. And on the shell of the snail, it had all these little spots. And each spot was, uh, it had like a, like a metal washer. So I could, I could stick magnetic letters on it. So it had all the letters of the alphabet on it. And that snail I called Gale the male snail that would deliver letters. And uh, a lot of the letters it would deliver would be like the letter of the week, like the letter L. <laughs> it was funny, though, because as we would prepare, it was a Montessori preschool. As we'd prepare activities for kids, we'd be thinking, hmm, what's, what's an L word? Uh, can you think of any L words? You know, what's an F word? Can you think of any F words? <laughs> They're preschoolers, so we had to watch what words we used. We had to be <laughs> our language. <there. laughs> so just, you know, I'm just picturing. You never know what young kids are going to say when you throw <laughs> out when you throw it to a live audience. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I, I won't say this I, on the podcast, but man, some of the words that came out of the mouth of some little kids, you would not believe. Some of them had some issues, and that could be a problem. <laughs> uh, I've also sometimes used my creativity to, to make fan, uh, cards to send out to the family, like birthday cards and things. And uh, I made a, a sculpture of a couple of dragons that... Uh, form a heart and that is what we put on our wedding cake when I got married a long time ago <laughs> so you know if you have skills if you have uh, you know the, the heart of an artist sometimes you can't help but but do creative things every now and then just just to keep your hands in it you know to keep at it it's uh, it's something that a, an artist is driven to do now some people have been busy enough that they they actually never do things on their own. They're just always employed and, and they've got plenty to do. But a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who did creature effects and such, um, like uh, doing sculptures, it builds your portfolio and, and builds your skill set. And it's also just a creative outlet. Because when you're working on a movie, unless it's a one man show, <laughs> one person show, you're not necessarily a person designing everything that you're you're making, which is cool. It's collaborative. It works that way, but it's a switch from when you're a kid and you're an amateur and you're doing everything just the way you want to do it. Um, so you have to you have to turn that corner. You have to work that out and see if you can replicate someone's drawing as a sculpture or take something that someone has made as a miniature and make it full size. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's challenging and uh, it's, it's stimulating. It was really an exciting time to be doing that kind of work. And like I say, I'm, I'm really blessed that I got to work on some of these films that if I weren't working on, I would have gone to see in the movie theaters anyway, because they're just fun. <laughs> they're just cool. <laughs> Exactly. And I want to, I think what's cool is you taking time to spend with me to talk about these movies in your career. And I really enjoyed it. I hope the listeners appreciate it too. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to brag. I'm just trying to give you a sense of the experience of what it was like in those days when it was all hands on before computers took over the world. <laughs> um, and, you know, 
and it's it's really cool. I'm really happy now that a lot of this modern generation, the young people right now, are rediscovering these films from back in the day. Just like I'm still excited of you know the Hammer movies from the '60s and '70s and the uh, Universal classics and even silent movies. I mean, it's all it's all part of this this cycle, this evolution. And I I love seeing the new movies. I love seeing the old movies. It's, uh, we live in a time that is amazing for people who want to enjoy and experience and watch these things. Um, it's unlike any other time. But I do kind of wonder if I was growing up now. Would I have the dedication to do the work to to develop my craft if I had all the distractions that are around today? They're inspirations, but if you spend all your time watching movies or playing video games or something, you're not going to be developing skills it would take to actually make a career of it if that's what you want to do. Um, yeah, I... I, uh, I've enjoyed talking with you. I've, I've enjoyed listening to you on other podcasts, especially the Monster Kid Radio. You know. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank I, you. I love I love your I love your enthusiasm and you know your genuine love for the subject matter. You know, you're I'm a Monster Kid. You're a Monster Kid. You know, we're compatriot spirits in that way. <laughs> and we're both movie lovers, monster lovers. It's just it's uh, what can you say? There's a lot of things to enjoy about being with magicians of the cinema being able to cast their spell on us, so to speak, so we can get just go there and enjoy the fantasy for 90 minutes to three hours, whatever the link for the movie is, and just have that spell put upon you and enjoy it. And uh, some people are able, like yourself, are able to help the directors and the actors be able to get those things across with the effects that you're able to do as part of those different uh, groups and teams and stuff like that. And it's just... I think people like yourself don't get the much recognition because you, like you said, people hear certain names, Harryhausen, Baker, Phil Tippett, you know, they, they hear certain names and that's all they focus on, but they don't realize, yeah, they're, they're, they're at the upper echelon, but then there's a, a horde of people below that are, are part of those, those creative teams. I don't want to thank you for fleshing that out. So listeners can understand that, you know, not everybody's the, you know, not everybody's a Spielberg, like with directors. There's all these other people, too. <laughs> I think there's only one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Yeah, it is collaborative. Some people find it challenging going from doing your own thing to collaborating. And, you know, those social skills are important. So, you know, some people would rather hire their friend who doesn't have a lot of skill than hire a skilled person who's going to be difficult to work with. And I'd say in all the films that I've worked on, I've only run into a couple of people who rub me the wrong way. I'm a pretty mellow person. I don't pick fights with people. <laughs> but um, I, I would say that for the most part, not only was I working with very talented people, but for the most part, I was working with people who were, you know, just fun to work with and who I, I could count as friends. You know, that's, that's really another plus to any job if you're working with people who you really get along with. And that's particularly important in something like filmmaking, where every every person 
can add something or detract from what this film is ultimately going to be. And sometimes a lot of really wonderful work goes into a project, but there are some things that just are a little off and <laughs> kind of throws the whole thing. You know, you look at a film like The Giant Claw, okay? If that big bird monster was really scary, it could have been a classic film. It's, it's a sort of a classic of its own type, and I find it tremendously entertaining, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, and some of the films I've worked on were a little funky in that way, maybe. <laughs> you know, just because something is practical effects doesn't mean that it's really good practical effects. But, um, you know, it, it, was, it was great to be there in the heyday in the 80s when these things were really coming to their own where people are doing new things all the time. And uh, I just really lucked out that I was there in that time and place so I could take advantage of these opportunities. And I appreciate the opportunity you give me to just uh, tell people what it was like. So thank you very much, Stephen. Well, thank you again. And um, listeners, you can find Ralph on um, online if you want to look him up and stuff like that. You can... Um, follow his career, like he said, going back and looking at these movies that we mentioned. He is an IMDb as Ralph Miller, number three. <laughs> yes, the third. Not to be confused with my dad or my grandfather. <laughs> so it's just that's you know because it does take a little bit of searching, but you but if you know a couple of the movies he's listed in, then when you go on IMDb, you hit you hit you find his name, then boom, it opens up the whole thing for you. And then and watch some of those movies, and just especially some of the ones we mentioned, they're just always enjoyable all the time. And as always, feel free to send us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook page. And thanks again for listening, and I hope everybody has a great day. I want to thank Ralph Miller again for joining me on this episode and allowing me to interview him about his remarkable career and his remarkable life. Again, I'll just remind everybody, if you want to leave us feedback, email us at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook site. And as a reminder, it's getting that time of the year, that most wonderful time of the year. Monster Bash is coming up. Basically, it's going to be this June 16th through the 18th at Marriott North of Pittsburgh again. I'm going to hear a trailer for it to exit the episode. And, of course, I'll have an upcoming episode where Ron and I will break down what's going to be happening at Monster Bash this June. And also we'll be talking about a movie. Hope you guys look forward to hearing that. Otherwise... Here's the Monster Bash promo, and have a good day. Mela Lugosi's Dracula, Monsters from Under the Sea, Atomic Frankensteins, and Grandpa Monster 2. Classic monster memorabilia vendors, movie and TV stars, signing autographed photos. It's all coming to the Marriott Pittsburgh North, June 16th through the 18th, 2023. It's Monster Bash! Fans who grew up with monster movies in the theater and on TV will descend on the Marriott Pittsburgh North. Hundreds and hundreds of fans. Don't you scare miss out as fans travel from all over the country to meet, shop, and enjoy classic monster entertainment. Coming to Monster Bash in June, Audrey Dalton, star of The Monster That Challenged the World and Boris Karloff's thriller TV shows. Charlotte Austin, who starred in Frankenstein 1970 with Karloff and Ed Wood's The Bride and the Beast. Lynn Lugosi-Sparks, 
the granddaughter of Dracula himself, Bela Lugosi. Daniel Roebuck, star of countless films, TV's Matlock, and Grandpa Munster in the latest Munsters movie. Plus, he's a super fan and collector of classic monster memorabilia. Beverly Washburn, actress in Spider Baby with Lon Chaney Jr., Thriller, and Disney's Old Yeller. Tom Savini, actor, makeup man, special effects genius, with credits that include Creep Show, Tales from the Dark Side, The Black Phone, and so much more. Pamela Pierce, actress and daughter of the director that brought us the legend of Boggy Creek. John Russo, co-writer and zombie from the original Night of the Living Dead, the origin of the modern zombie. And Ohio TV horror host legend, the one and only Son of Ghoul, still creeping to TV sets after all these years. Plus Cleveland horror hosts Drac and Countess Corita. Monster Bash is wall-to-wall -wall vendors and a giant horror hotel packed with classic monster movie fans. Don't miss out. Three-day VIP admission is $55 in advance or $60 at the door for all three packed days. Single-day admission at the door is $25. It's all at the Pittsburgh Marriott North, Friday through Sunday, June 16th through the 18th, 2023. Get your advanced membership admission online at creepyclassics.com. That's creepyclassics.com. More information is available at monsterbash.us or call 724-238-4317. It's Monster Bash.